The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist executive search and TV production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Welcome to The Imposter Club, a podcast for people working in TV to admit that we are all just winging it. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, director turned talent company founder and I glean secrets from influential figures in the creative industries every day. Spoiler alert, more successful people than you'd ever realise still feel like a fraud. But you don't get to hear their stories. That changes right here. In this podcast, it's my mission to discover how you can carve out an award-winning career in the company of self-doubt by asking respected senior people to share their stories of career fears and failures and what they learned from them. Come on in to the Imposter Club. This week's guest is the legendary Stu Richards. Do you think just because I've got a big microphone, I'm going to be really good at this podcasting malarkey? It does look proper, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Stu is a comedy writer and producer of sitcoms and Funny Factual. He runs Rockerdale Studios with partner Michelle Singer, and they make stuff like Mission Accessible, and Dine Hard with Rosie Jones, Bobby and Harriet Get Married, and Brad Boys. I've helped him find development talent in the past, and he was ace on my Edinburgh TV Festival panel because he's not afraid to say it like it is. He loves a good swear too, so stick your headphones on if you're around small people. With his first baby due any day, I grabbed some time with Stu to talk running with Richard Maidley, blagging it in business, and why coming out as disabled, as he put it, was the best thing he ever did. Hey, Stu. Hello. How do you feel about being part of the first series of A Club for Imposters? Thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled. It's like being part of the first, I don't know, the first Taskmaster group or the first, I don't know, the first show on Channel 4. I feel like Richard Whiteley. That's what I feel like. We're going to be that series that people go back to for like retro kicks. Wow, do you remember when? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they hadn't really figured out how to do it yet, as you can tell by this episode with Stu Richards. It was a bit ropey, but uh, they figured it out in the end. And me, yeah. making it up as I go along. That's why I'm also part of the Imposter Club. <laughs> so, you run a production company. We're going to yes. talk about your relationship with this feeling of winging it over the years. How does, how does Imposter Syndrome manifest itself to you? What do you think it is? It's a sort of feeling of being out of place I suppose or not worthy of being in the place that you are and I suppose by extension there's an assumption there that there is such a thing as being in a place or worthy of a place or that the very idea that there's some sort of objective classification of people who are supposed to be here and not supposed to be here and and you've decided that you're not one of the one of the good categories, I suppose. Do you think the creative industries struggle with imposter syndrome more than most? Yeah, because because the nature of creativity is so nebulous, I suppose. You know, I've got accountant friends who spent years and they're still taking exams that, that prove, you know, categorically <laughs> that this is a job you should now be in, I suppose. And no one does that with us, you know what I mean? You can, you can blag a whole career in this industry, which is one of the things I love about it. Yeah, we haven't done the exams, have we? I don't know. Have you ever had any official training over the years? 
I did an Albert sustainability course recently. Is that it? So, it definitely counts. You definitely don't need um, to feel like an imposter no, when it comes to environmental no. production. But no one's ever, no one's ever formally assessed whether I'm any good at coming up with ideas for TV shows. Thankfully. No, I don't know if you could do that though. It, like you say, it's so subjective, isn't it? Like, who, who is to say something's brilliant and something's awful? I mean, how did you get into the industry to start with? Came to a uh, big fancy posh university in London, UCL. Uh, I did uh, a course that was called European Social and Political Studies. I, I certainly felt imposter syndrome there when I turned up on, on the first day. The, the, everyone on the course was super smart and fucking hot. And like they all had these sexy European accents. <laughs> and so they were all like these really impressive people who'd studied at European schools and the like. And, and, and so I went there and I was, incre- I was incredibly intimidated by them. I was just like, oh my, I'm like a little ruddy ginger troll from Rochdale. And I'm supposed to, <laughs> I'm supposed to sit in a lecture theatre with these people. And <laughs> But to be honest, I think speaking a foreign language is slightly overrated as a talent, if I'm being totally honest with you. I think so. I'm not sure, what would you honestly. say if I told you, Stu, that I have a degree in modern languages, French and German, and I ha- which I highly value from Bristol University? <laughs> yeah, I do. But to be fair, I don't use them. I did blag um, a job on a place in the sun because of them. However, I didn't work on a place in the sun. I worked on a place by the sea, which was in the UK. <laughs> so it wasn't well, a lot please. of use. Okay, so first job in telly. How, how did you get it? It was a runner's job on uh, Rich and Judy. Set my CV off, came for an interview, was a bit of a gobshite, and uh, they hired me. Yeah, I mean, they sacked me three months later, I should say. Um, what happened? Oh, I think I, I really enjoyed sort of working on the production for Rich and Judy. You know, you'd have all these sort of fun interactions with very famous people. Uh, Richard Maybe called me Chippy once, I'll tell you that. Oh. No, that's, that's kind of cool. I can't remember why. I was thinking about where we were from and stuff, and and it, I think maybe I'd mentioned to him a couple of times that I was from the north, and he went, "You're really bloody proud. You're really bloody proud of where you're from, aren't you?" Like with a face as if to say that I shouldn't be, or or that or that I'm a bit too chippy, or that I'm a professional northerner. <laughs> and he eventually sacked me after three months because it was a few things in a row that were all just me being a bit sort of slapdash in my work, to be honest. So. Um, there was one time where I caused us to miss a flight, a crew to miss a flight to Glasgow. Because oh, no. I was taking a dump in the airport. Um, I'm hoping the toilets, not just in the airport. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not on the runway. No, I wasn't. I, I've never shat on a runway. That's one thing I will say about myself. Um, and then there was another time where I, I, you know, they had the Rich and Judy book club. Yeah. That Amanda Ross was in charge of. Mm-hmm. One time I had to transport some books from the office to her home. And I dropped one of them as I got out the other side of her house, and she was furious. Oh. And, I mean, you were a runner. Uh, you, you were young. You were, you know, just trying to be helpful, right? Yeah. Or was this an attitude thing, Stuart? No, I don't. Th- I don't think I was like. I don't think I was like being a dick. I, I just didn't think. <laughs> I just maybe didn't realise how important books were, or I guess I sort of thought, I don't know. I need a dump. You know, like I'm going to take a dump, man. Like just. <laughs> So I guess I, I didn't ever feel, and I think it was part of the reason I went into TV, because I never really felt that any of this mattered that much. Right. Making daytime TV with Rich and Judy, it's fine if one of the books on their shows has a scuffed cover. It's, it's everything's sort of fine almost mm-hmm. all of the time. I mean, unless you're making, I don't know, some important like news or something. But There are a lot of people, right, who are you know junior in the industry trying to get in trying really hard 
And when you look back now, do you think that attitude was cool, was cool or actually would you do it differently? What? What a question. You're good at this. You should do this professionally. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Stu. Same was I being a little prick give, and, and not basically... Uh, deserving of a job that loads of people would kill to have. Yeah, maybe. I think that's fair. That Probably. was your words, not mine. I think that's absolutely fair. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't respect the job very much. I suppose. But you sound like guess... you were very confident. That that doesn't sound like you had any problem with confidence at that at that point. It might be that, or it might just be more that I didn't have an appreciation for the stakes. I guess I just thought. It just. I guess it. It didn't seem like jobs were as at a premium then as they are now i don't think so i, I always thought oh, there'll be a job somewhere else that i'll that i'll get i suppose and is that confidence maybe yeah maybe i mean it was definitely a sense in which i looked at the work and i never thought this is that important really in the scheme of things in the in the in the context of everything i just don't think this is that important i, I, I guess and I, that's one thing that i think hasn't really changed to be honest we're just making telly do you know what i mean like i think there's, there's, there's exceptions to that people who make incredibly important stuff but for the rest of us we're just fucking about aren't we and we're lying if we tell ourselves that we went into this career for any other reason do you know what i mean that's why we work in telly isn't it <laughs> love that attitude though this is a cool job. It should be a fun and cool job, right? We're, we're putting stuff on that screen that it's people also. point their furniture at to entertain them in, on some level or other, whether it's out loud laughing or to make them think about something in a different way. That's all entertainment, isn't it? Totally, totally. We've got a website. Head to theimposterclub.com where you can contact the show and sign up to receive our emails as we build a warm community of creative imposters for world domination. Wahaha. <laughs> Don't get FOMO and head to theimposterclub.com after this episode. Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote, you can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited you could say when I had the demo it's so cool and easy to use you take contributor photos write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop and I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings so no more illegible coffee stained note saying blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop and as a bonus it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month and with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conotes.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv or say hi to Eleanor directly, eleanor at conote.tv. So you got your first runner job at Rich and Judy, then you did a stint in development. Did you always think that development was for you? 
off the back of that placement and development I did in Manchester, yeah, I think it was very clear to me on my first day in the placement where it was, ju- it was oh, it's just coming up with ideas. That's the job. And I think from from then on, I knew that yeah, that was absolutely what I wanted to be, what I wanted to be doing. I just I couldn't believe that that was a job that you could have. It's just not. It's not a job anyone ever talks about. It's like when I eventually went to be a comedy writer again as a kid. You were like you watch jokes on television, but you don't you don't know that there's a guy in a room just sitting there writing them. And and the same with ideas that there's just te- there's just teams of people who sit around going, what if right? What if you sent uh, Stephen Mulhern to the moon, right? And the reason for that is something about um, the future. Could we live on the moon because we're because we're destroying the Earth, so we need to live on the future? And why Stephen Mulhern? Okay, well, maybe he did science at school. Okay, okay. And just people just I'm sitting there, there doing already. that all day. Yeah, it is quite astounding, <laughs> isn't it, that we can get paid for thinking about stuff like that. Totally. And don't get me wrong, it's hard to convert that nonsense chain of thinking into something that's an actual commission. Of course it is. But but nonetheless, what was also startlingly clear is that I wasn't cut out for a lot of production jobs because I would continually get sacked from them, to be honest. So, um, <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> so you, did you try for a career in production then, but it just didn't pan out? I wouldn't even say that. It was just that you you had to get jobs as runners or you had to get jobs as, you know, the first junior development researcher, I think, was one job I I had. Um, I couldn't get through a month's probation. I guess partly because I just wanted to be coming up with ideas and stuff, but because I was at the bottom of the chain, my job was to make sure that everyone got the right copy of the right newspaper every day and the the right things were recorded on the sky plus box and burnt onto a dvd the night before and stuff and i just and i just thought all of this is peripheral all of this is trivial work that that it that that someone who wants to show how hard they work would do and it just and i just went to come up with ideas and i didn't see that all that stuff was valuable and I sort of still feel like that, to be honest. If I was hiring someone, it'd be a waste of money, I think, for me to have them spend all day recording stuff from, from the telly or whatever it was. Maybe that was a bit of arrogance, I suppose. I don't know. But not making it through your month probation. I mean, how shit do you have to be for that? They gave me a warning and everything. It wasn't even unfair. It was totally fair. They get The woman, the, the HR person, she sat me down. She went, come on, son. Come on, <laughs> you know. It's interesting, though. It sounds like... You were very confident in yourself and you knew what you wanted to do and you wanted to put that first, which is no bad thing because you felt you had good ideas before the company, but also you weren't prepared to kind of toe the line or play the game, I suppose. So it was like you were not prepared to do that because you felt you were better at other things, you know, rightly or wrongly. But it's what I find interesting is that actually you still believe that in your company that you run now, that you don't need to do those bits. I think you are just such a creative person I think that's true, but I think if I hired someone of that sort of level now, of course I expect them to follow my orders, don't get me wrong, but I'm also looking for a bit of um, sort of renegade spirit in them. I'm I'm also looking for a bit of that. I want them to follow orders. Some shitty instructions that need to be done, but then other times it'll be like, can you look into this thing for me? Just tell me if you find me anything interesting or, or sort of that sense of, look, just every week, just 
chuck some ideas at me or whether it's ideas for shows or things you've seen or whatever so they can have that spirit and that's when I say I stand by it I don't mean I did the right thing per se obviously I didn't and that's why I was quite rightly sacked but you stand by that renegade spirit thing like you probably should have done more of what you were asked then but actually the maverick thing the kind of the spontaneous stuff you place a lot of importance on and you still do I think so. Yeah, it's certainly in, in creative jobs. Yeah, yeah. And the the other side to this is that I was just useless at a lot of production jobs. I just wasn't good at them, and I didn't have enough attention to detail for certain jobs that are required in 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 production. It's just not what I'm good at. And so I think one thing that I've tried to do through my whole career is focus on stuff that I am good at rather than stuff that I'm terrible at. Because there's loads of people who can do that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Did you do you think you felt consciously at that time early on in your career that you were winging it? Yeah, completely, hundred percent. I've always felt myself my whole life to be winging it. My, I, I've never. F- oh, actually, that's not true. And very recently, I've felt more comfortable. Actually, more like I sort of deserve a seat at the table, as I, I, I guess it was. But I felt, I felt like I was winging it my whole career. At the same time my attitude to that was to be amused by it rather than to be intimidated I, I sort of looked at it and go look I don't not sure if I belong here but rather than going oh that's terrible poor me I've just sort of gone well that's quite funny isn't it that I mean you know that I might be in a room with a bunch of posh boys in their 50s and I probably don't belong in their spaces what does that even you know sort of but find amusement at the very concept of not belonging and find that slightly sort of ridiculous and meaningless so it's something that you feel to be true but rationally i think when you lay it out well, what does it actually mean to belong in this space i find that amusing so in a sense the more out of place i felt the more i've enjoyed it to be perfectly honest um, a nice soundbite i'm gonna use that that's gonna be like a, a trailer <laughs> teaser thing we were, in a, we, were in, we were in a lawyer's office recently, right? Last year when we were securing a deal for investment in our company, me and my business partner, Michelle, she's amazing. Basically, all the skill sets that I lack, she has. And we're in a, a, the lawyer's office signing a deal. And we had a deadline. It's like in half an hour. And we're signing these big contracts. And someone's running back and forward from like the fax machine or something, or like printing, printing shit off. And we got to sign it and get it back. And we're in this lawyer's room, and it's this sort of boardroom in a typical sort of lawyer's office. Everything's calm, there's no music, there's no sound, everyone's dressed properly. And I'm walking around this boardroom just going, fuck me, what am I doing here? But as I say, the follow-up thought for that, for me for that, is not, well, I shouldn't be here then. It's, isn't that funny as fuck? Isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm walking around the room. They've got on the wall, they've got all these framed images of clients in the past right and they're unbelievable people that they're all like rock star like actual rock stars it's people like as one of the beatles it was someone like Jimi hendrix it was someone someone from the rolling stones and there was like big act massive actors from the past and stuff and i'm just going these guys have signed a deal using these lawyers and now this little dick from rochdale is in here doing that and as I say, I think the next thought for some people is to be consumed by that. But for me, it's to just find it incredibly funny that I'm here doing doing that. Um, and that felt like the sort of that felt almost like the peak of that out of placeness. But you never know. The lawyers in that office 
might be doing that thing that those lovely warm Italian restaurants do when they meet celebrities. I I went to lunch in um in London the other day, <laughs> yeah. and I was sitting in a corner with all the framed pictures of the owner of yeah. the restaurant with Chris Tarrant, with a pop star. You know, Justin from the Darkness. He's always in those pictures. Oh, Justin yes. from the Darkness, especially any Indian places. Oh yeah, yeah. Justin from the Darkness and Jeremy Corbyn. Those are your those are your big two in the Indian place. And, no, but oh, Chris you, you ran see, I grilled them on it. I grilled them on every single one actually, Did and they you? didn't always know the answer. But of course, that's my nature. When I should have been signing forms, I was like, when did you work with? Ginger Baker, one of the greatest drummers of all time, you know. What was the um, deal you signed with Bono? <laughs> but no, there's lots of ordinary folk walk through the doors too, Stu. That's what my point. In the Italian restaurant, I was sitting there. I'm not famous. I right, was eating my yes. pasta. It's just the famous ones they put on the wall. That's a really interesting point, though. That So early on in your career, you were out of place and getting fired. But right near, you know, the, the peak of your career now, you're out of place and you're laughing at it. That's kind of cool. Because it gives you good stories as well, isn't it? If you can say, like, you can say to your 24-year-old mates, hey, guess what? Someone gave me a line of cocaine in Richard Madeley's dressing room last week, lads. Obviously, that that never happened. No, of course it doesn't. I'm saying if it did, (laughs) you'd have a story to tell. And the point being, it's such an absurd story that rather than being intimidated by the surfboard in the corner of Richard Madeley's dressing room, wondering why has Richard Madeley got a surfboard mm-hmm. in his Kennington dressing room, you're sitting there and you you know and you're talking to people at the rap party like they you know Ricky Gervais is walking about. Oh, I made a right tits of myself in front of Ricky Gervais, and this was sort of probably just after extras, I think around that time where he was real sort of peak of his fame before he started upsetting everyone. Um, and I had this script sort of in my bag for some reason, and I waited until he left the table that he was at. He was chatting to Rich and Judy, and so Ricky Gervais gets up and leaves his seat, and I think I'm gonna just like say hello to him, maybe get him to sign my script or something, and I, and he goes up, walks away, and I go, oh, excuse me, Ricky, I'm, I'm, I've written a sitcom. Would you mind signing it? And he just turned around and went, sure, but do you mind if I just go to the toilet first? And I, I just, oh, it was just a hideous, mo- like, oh. Oh, and now he's going to know man just wants a sh- he's going to know that you're waiting yeah. for him to come out so he can't go and do number two can he yeah, so I had to leave it there oh, that's, that's another, great there's another example where of I think where that sort of imposter syndrome that could kick in but you but if you choose to if you choose to look at it in a way that you find amusing I, that's my approach anyway I think that gets you through rather than being consumed by by how overwhelming it all can be yeah, you know, so it's it how how you handle it, isn't it? And everyone's mm. different, and that's that's your co- kind of coping mechanism. Totally. Yeah. This is the Imposter Club. Coming up, we had to start shooting within a week. We need to get their money into our account, but of course, we didn't have an account because we didn't have a fucking business. Ooh. I've got a favour to ask. Pretty please hit follow or subscribe to the Imposter Club podcast for two reasons. One, so you don't miss an episode. But two, because I'm told it'll help other people find us more easily. After all, the more people like us that are safe inside the Imposter Club, the fewer there are outside on their own. Welcome back to the Imposter Club, where I'm talking to comedy production company boss Stu Richards, who's just told me he chooses to laugh in the face of imposter syndrome and has plenty more anecdotes to evidence that. Tell me about how Rockerdale came into being. Okay. I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. 
The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership, as EditCloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. EditCloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. So I had become a comedy writer by then. No thanks to Ricky Gervais. I had, in my previous job, I'd been working as a sort of development producer or development exec somewhere, and one day I'd, I'd written a script on the, on the side because I'd been doing stand-up comedy, and I'd met a friend over uh, on the stand-up comedy circuit, and we'd written a script together. And one day I came into work and I said, boss, do you mind if I pitch this script? And he just went, all right, fine. It wasn't, even, it wasn't a scripted company at all. I worked in factual entertainment and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, got commissioned. We made a pilot. And then it really went it went down well. The BBC liked it. They commissioned it to a series. So now I was a comedy writer, mm-hmm. uh, which was just beyond my wildest dreams. It was, what, it was the one thing that I'd wanted to do. I, I never really had too many goals or dreams, but that was the one thing. And I never really expected it to happen. Anyway, so I had my next idea, and I shot a little taster for it. I took it to a production company. They said they wanted to option it. They optioned it, pitched it around for nine months or 12 months, handed it back just saying look it's not the option has run out we haven't had this commissioned and so I said all right fine well did you pitch it to Viceland because that's where I suggested they should pitch and they said nah but we didn't think they'd want it so that very day when the tape came back to me and the option had run out I went to Viceland pitched it so just as me just as a bloke they said come in we really like this and they said look we want to make this at the time, they made everything in-house. And I said, look, I, I, I don't want to make this in-house with you guys. I want to make this with my own production company. And had you thought this through? <sighs> the night before, probably. Or, and they said, they said, fine, you can make it with your own company. But the thing is, that was a massive lie because I didn't have a company. I was bullshitting. I just, I was bullshitting. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have a company. Oh, my God. I didn't know how to set up a company. So you were in the meeting... Saying, I want to, my company to yeah, make this without yeah, yeah. a company. And yeah. So they went, all right, I'll tell you what, what we'll do is come and meet our international European VP of business affairs. And took me in another, so they took me in another room with this woman who was just like, she was smart. And she just, you when you meet someone who just knows what the hell they're doing, which makes it all the more intimidating. Mm-hmm. And so now she's talking business at me and finance and stuff, something I know nothing about. Because not only have I not run a company, but I haven't even worked in production. I'm just a development dosser. So she pulls out her card and says, look, you know, give me a shout after this, uh, her business card. And I sort of pat my pockets going, oh, oh, do you know what? I must have run out of cards. I must have handed them all out. (laughs) And, uh, And I said, right, what I'll do is, now, this is the one bit of planning I had done, because the, the, basically the night before I'd spoken to my now business partner, Michelle, who was a production manager, and I just said, look, if this gets commissioned, would you be up for sort of coming on and, and just like production managing this show and basically making it? Because I have no idea how to make a TV show. Wow. Wow. So, and what you, I hope and, she said um, yes. Yeah, she was like, yeah, all right. Because, yeah, after that meeting, I basically rang her, and it was... It was um, Passover, I want to say. She's Jewish, so she was at her family doing 
Jew, Jewish people things. And I was like, oh, hey, um, so it looks, <laughs> it looks like we're making a series and uh, Welcome starting to the a business. company at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that is utterly and, amazing, and it, that story. Like, I don't We know. then, we then, because what I didn't say is that we, we had to... So the show was called Bobby and Harriet Get Married, and it was about two comedians who were getting married in real life. Right. And what the, the show was narrativizing the lead up to their wedding, basically constructing it in the form of a sitcom up to their wedding. Mm-hmm. Problem was their wedding was in seven weeks' time. Mm-hmm. We had to start shooting within about a week or maybe two weeks at most. And therefore, we needed to get some... We need to get their money into our accounts as soon as possible. But of course, we didn't have an account because we didn't have a fucking business. Ooh. So we had to set up an account as soon as possible. We had like, I think maybe, I think maybe we had a weekend to set up an account because they had to put the money in on, on Monday. And so one day we we call up, I think, it, uh, one of the banks that Michelle had do- dealt with in the past. Mm-hmm. They couldn't work quick enough. So we had to go, right, what can we do? I'm online looking for any company that can set up an account like wow. that. Of course, they're all proper roby, ropey banks who do almost no checks. And we, so we thought, oh, what about the um the Metro Bank? They seem to be open at this time and they say they can open an account really quickly. So so we drive up to one in Wood Green, I dash out the car, speak to them, and they go, No, we can't set it up in time or, or something like that. But there is one Metro Bank that can do this in time for you. That's in something like Earl's Court. Right, okay, poof, back in the car, zoom down to Earl's Court, finally get in a meeting with um with Yarek at Earl's Court Metro Bank. Um and uh, so I'm sitting there for an hour or so, and he's going through all the checks, and we're having that conversations. Michelle is still trying to set up an account with the original bank we tried, and we eventually, uh, I, I I get a voicemail on my phone while I'm speaking to Yarok. I said, Yarok, do you mind if I just go to the toilet? Because I had a feeling it might be the original bank. Yeah. And I get a voicemail from the guy at the original bank going, I is that Mr. Richards? I just want to let you know I've got some good news for you. Now, I can't tell you what it is over the phone, but... It's, it's good if you know what I mean. Like, I think I might have saw, saw, solved your problem. So I was like, okay, well, they're going to set up an account for them. I had to come out and say to poor Yarek, who was going to get all this nice commission at us starting an account, I'd say, mate, I've got a rush. And I'm, I feel oh. quite bad about this because I just went, a family emergency, Yarek. I'm so sorry, mate. I've just got to run. I've just got to run. And then I dashed out, spoke to the gathered up the your utility guy, started bills the and your passport yeah and mid, mid form on the computer oh my gosh dude so you got you got the bank account opened by a mad so we got the account London. open the, yeah the money came in a few days later and we started rolling a couple of days after that if, if that's not the definition of winging it i don't know what is yeah you talk about imposter syndrome but that, that was me being a, a a quite literal imposter in that meeting with the channel. Like I was saying I had a company, I didn't have a company, so. I have massive respect for, for what you did there. And obviously you've got you've gone on to make amazing things and have so much in development and so much going on with the company that it all panned out. I mean, is there a danger that by telling these sorts of stories with telling people to just blag their entire careers i mean there's got to be a foundation right i suppose that's what i'm getting at you've got to know yeah that you can no deliver. I, th- I think it comes back to my my theory that most things most jobs in tv aren't that hard really and that you can sort of figure most stuff out <laughs> this is what i think when people are very protective about their specific profession in t- tv you know when they're worried about people being promoted you know in, into higher jobs and stuff yeah some people can't hack it but a lot of people can 
And that those are the good, those are you separate the good people from the bad people. Most people can figure stuff out. When when I hire someone relatively junior, I'm as much looking for their smartness and their ability to figure shit out as I am any particular skill. Because whoever you hire, it's good. they're going to have to do something that they've never done before. Mm. And so you can tell the difference when you when you ask someone. If, if I'm interviewing someone who's relatively junior, and I say, "Oh, have you ever done this?" There's, you get there's two there's three types of responses. One, yes, I absolutely do this. Or no, I don't know how to do that. And then my preferred response, my favourite response is, no, but I'll figure that out. There's a YouTube tutorial for whatever it is I'm asking them to do. They'll go, no, no, no I haven't done much of it, but I'll suss it out. And you can tell by the way they say it yeah. that that's that who is in a sense a blagger, but but it's also someone who 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 I'd back to figure it out. Quite frankly. I guess ultimately, I, I probably already had a, always had a certain confidence in myself to figure most most things out. I mean, I failed several times. That's why I got sacked loads of times in my career. Don't get me wrong. Are the stakes really high or higher now that you run your own company? Yeah, yeah, much higher. Yeah, yeah. I sort of have to know what I'm doing. Um, no, that's not true. I'm probably just a chancer in different ways, actually, in terms of the punts that I'll make. But I mean, the other thing is, I, I have brilliant people around me now, and that's that's another I think really important aspect to all this. If you can't do stuff, just hire someone who can. You know what I mean? Specifically, hire smart people. If you surround yourself, I guess, with with smart people, ideally people who are smarter than you, then I don't know, you'll be all right. I think. <laughs> I think it's the the most underrated quality is a sort of trust and delegation. I think that the thing about surrounding yourself with good people is, is fab and also supporting them. You know, the scenario you just talked about with the person who says, I don't know how to do that, but I'll figure it out. That's all, that's all very well, but you also need to support that person, don't you? If they don't figure it out, then you think they're a failure and actually no one's really talked about it. I think as much as anything, it's, back, it's sure that you trust them. You rate them, I think, ultimately. There's, you want to feel rated by your boss. And when you do that, you, you, you sort of can figure anything. I mean, look, I'm not suggesting for one minute that I think someone who's never picked up a camera can become an elite DOP by a YouTube tutorial. <laughs> Not for one second suggesting there's something as absurd as, as that. We are problem solvers, aren't we, in telly? That's what I think. I quite like a, a drama to go, do you know what? We can sort this by tomorrow. It's going to be fucking hard, but we can do it. Totally. And ultimately, my goal with the company is to hire myself into obsolescence. Is that on the, on the tagline of your website? <laughs> Rockadale <laughs> yeah. Studios, run by Stu Richards. My goal being, yeah, that's that's my that's my sort of equivalent to Ted Lasso's believe. It's just hire me into obsolescence, <laughs> and then be the boss of everything, but do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Just walking through an office. I always envied you know when you see an exec producer in an office and he's just sort of walking through the office, just like making decisions here, not actually doing any pieces of work, but just making decisions. I always quite fancied that. You definitely have to have a camera in your face and be panning backwards. As you're walking through the office, you know, saying, do this, do yeah, that, take a left, yeah, take a right, have a coffee. Sort of, yeah, yeah, you know that shot. It's sort of West Wing style. Yeah. yeah. So we're talking about people and surrounding yourself with people that you rate. But also you you are a very transparent, open, what you get is what you see kind of person. Now, it wasn't all that long ago that you publicly talked about your disability. I came out as I came out as disabled is how I phrased it, yes. Yeah. And that that to me is kind of well it was it was huge for you, I know that. It it was also huge for all the people around you. 
But it's also quite surprising when, you know, I have got to know you, the listener will now have got to know you a little, and you are like exactly as you are in person in all parts of your life. So how did you hide your disability for such a long time and what that must have had an impact on your career well i guess the i mean the, the simplest answer to that question is is because it's an invisible disability it's a chronic pain disorder that i have and no one can see that um one of the things i do is basically is move around a lot this chat we've had here is the longest that i will sit down in any in any given run all day and so I'm always up on my feet. I suspect people probably did see that. They just didn't know why I was I was doing it. But also, I never considered it a disability, to be honest. I, I've been in pain since I was 17, and I don't know why, but I never considered it a disability. And it wasn't until about two years ago I spoke to my friend Rosie, Rosie Jones, from the telly, um, and said, hey, Rosie, I'm, I'm thinking about sort of like coming out and saying, I was, saying I'm disabled because of the chronic pain what, what do you think and she just she started taking the piss out is what she did <laughs> that sounds very rosy <laughs> we started taking the piss out of me saying well why wouldn't you and then she told me why i wouldn't which was a sort of <laughs> a sort of ableism in my mind because what i was worried about was well look at me i'm running about i play football every, you know several times a week and and stuff like that and and she went well so what like what is is it is it that you only see disabled people as someone who like can't live independently or is, is that a disabled person in your mind she said well look at me like I'm, am i not disabled i live independently i do everything myself and anyway she continued like this and mm-hmm. roasting me for quite some time um <laughs> before we eventually sort of came to this in that yes i would i would just i would just use the d word now and then she um, promptly proceeded to welcome me to, as she called it, Spaz Club. We meet in the park at 5pm every Friday and dribble on each other. Very much her words. She's brilliant. Um, she's awful. So, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so yes, I sort of came out and it changed everything for me, really, in terms of... Uh, um, How so? In loads of ways. In terms of, well, personally, in terms of just being a bit more accepting, about being a bit more open about it. You know, I'd always been open about it with my wife I suppose but but I didn't think I could be more open about it but weirdly I, I was I, I felt more comfortable in admitting ways that it affected me because I think when people meet me because as you can see I'm a bit of a gobshite um, it, it's hard to imagine that someone like me is just sitting here being in pain but I am all of the time and that's quite hard to compute and I, mm. and I don't sort of hold that against anyone because frankly it's the same for me as well you just look at me how can this guy be in pain look at him right just try and shite for an hour or whatever so on that personal level enabled me to open up really to my wife my friends my family or whatever i think i'm probably on some level myself to sort of maybe give myself a bit of a break a bit more professionally it opened up a lot of opportunities, to be honest, to be to be perfectly blunt, it helped. And I knew it would. I said, I said look, I know now that this is going to open me up to all sorts of initiatives and schemes and stuff like stuff like that. And did I feel a bit weird about that? Yes, I absolutely did. But at the same time, it's funny to look back at it, actually. I sort of realised that, oh, I'd, oh, I've always been working in, in developing ideas in this area. And my sitcom for the BBC was about, it's called Jerk, and it's about a guy... Who has, cere- who has cerebral palsy but goes around being a bit of a prick to people, okay. essentially. Sort of like a young, disabled Larry David. And that was the first sitcom, I think, that had a lead with cerebral palsy 
ever, I think. And we made Mission Accessible, uh, Channel 4 thing, with Rosie Jones that was all about accessible travel. Thank you. But it it was sort of obviously mischievous and stuff. Mm -hmm. None of that work had been boo-hoo, poor disabled boy or girl. And so I'd always sort of worked in that area. And also hiring people who were disabled behind the camera has always been something very important to us and stuff. So I, I, I guess this is, even now, I'm still justifying to myself, like this is what I'm saying now, if I'm honest, is me desperately trying to justify my use of that, of the word, which tells you I'm probably still not as entirely comfortable with it as I make out. But it also, something that completely changed my perspective on this, last year I went to the Edinburgh TV Festival with a group of um, disabled, sort of fairly senior disabled TV workers that I'd come to know, like incredible people like Caroline O'Neill, Sam Tatlow, ITV, Ali Castle, Nicola Gad, and Kate Monaghan, and just this brilliant bunch of people who I hadn't really known too well before, but we went up as this group and sort of, I uh, decided to nickname us the Cripperati for lols. And there was something about spending time with them and being part of a community like that that because so, if you're just a fucking middle class white bloke like me you've always been the middle class white bloke you've had all the privileges that come with that <laughs> but you've never known what it's like to be as part of a community like this and I was like holy shit these people are incredible and they've all got such a great sense of humour they're a bunch of gobby brilliant mostly women I don't know something about being part of that community that sort of shifted my perception of what it was to be disabled to be in a disabled community because so much of what you are so much of what we sort of exposed to or come into contact with in the area of disability whether it's tv shows or 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 stuff in the papers or whatever it's sad or it's serious to be part of this group of sort of mad bastards was like oh oh okay cool you can you can be part of this community, but also you can be like this. And, and to all, I mean, to all those guys, to them, that's, that's an obvious reality. Most of them have been disabled for all on, or if not most of their lives, and they've always been like that. But for me, sort of being this weird, what felt like, I was going to say intruder, but maybe imposter was the word I was looking for, I suppose. <laughs> I think it might be. Coming into this sort of space and this group of people, it was such a, just a real, I don't know epiphanic moment I suppose in a way that that I guess helped me accept myself on a personal level in in that sense and feel more justified in speaking up on this issue because again I, do, I get invited onto panels and stuff like that mm-hmm. as as the sort of oh he, he, the, he can be the disabled member and, and I, I am convinced that people are sitting there looking at me going this guy's disabled you, sh- you sure about that I sort of wouldn't wouldn't blame them I suppose because we all have those sort of ableist perceptions of what a disabled person looks like. What's become increasingly clear to me is that I'm still working this out in my head and I think that's what's happening right now. Like a form of therapy now. This is what this podcast has become to me. Uh. I do like to remind people at the beginning that I am not a qualified therapist but I'm a good listener. No, Thank you for that. But I do I think what you've just said I find really interesting is that um, despite not telling anyone during the making of jerk and loads of other developments I'm sure that you have been involved in that have centered around the lived experience of disabled people no one knew at that point no no, no. and so you were you no. were expressing yourself and your own experiences in the dark whilst being that exactly that that person from a minority background a diverse background that truly do need to be included in a team to make 
content and to come up with ideas and and have the right angle on stuff that is representative of an audience that are going to watch it so without you even knowing and putting your hand up and going I'm that person on your team that can do this you were doing it and no one knew that actually it was you going through it yeah yeah it is also kind of weird that you felt like an imposter in a group of disabled people that you totally loved and got on with but you were feeling like a fraud going what am I here or sitting on a panel going people are gonna wonder you know that I don't look disabled yeah yeah one of my favorite moments one of my favorites of the group her name's Kate Monaghan she just looked at me she was sitting in her wheelchair at the time she just looked up at me she went Stu what's your disability It was one of my absolute highlights, and I just and I sort of explained to her, oh, I have sort of chronic back pain. She just went, "All right, cool." Like that. It was just a sort of directness that, like, I don't know, that felt within that sort of community, it just felt really fine and amusing to me in a way that you would probably never do outside of a community no. like that. I know it's incredibly personal, um, isn't it? But what would you say to someone else who has an invisible disability and is nervous about? talking about it about seeking help for it about being honest at work good question it's really hard to give generalized advice there because the temptation is to say just come out come out say it come out do it but i realize that it isn't always that easy and there are some companies that just don't know how to respond to that i think we're at a very particular time in the sort of course of disabled workers in TV history, which is to say, I don't know, maybe you could add to this mm. in your job. I'm sure you'd have loads of insight on this, but what I'm seeing at the moment is that we are hiring more disabled people. It's just that we sometimes don't know what to do with them when, we, when we've hired them. The, the, I guess the crucial maxim here is ask them what they need to do their job best and just fucking give them it. Like, that's it. But we don't know how to do that yet, I think. Is that I completely agree. You've... Yeah, so there's still a lot of work to be done amongst employers to do with supporting and reasonable adjustments or actually just being human about these things having these conversations is something that my team and I are really comfortable with now because we've had lots of experience and we still don't always get it right because it is so incredibly personal but yeah I think the will the intention is there to employ more diverse teams more disabled people specifically there's still not enough opportunities, of course, and there are still biases that run riot, but there are people like us and you know, lots of people championing um, the best person for the job. But you're right, there's no point getting people into these jobs and then not supporting them because that all goes wrong for both parties. It's so not so. good for the employee. And the employer goes, oh, well, that didn't work, did it? Which is really unfair. So no, that's, that's where I think we're at. And so in terms of advice then, I think if you're comfortable which you may not be with telling people I think that you should. I think the, the cynical side to that is I think most people at the moment are do, wanting to hire disabled people, to be honest. I would use that on the whole work position now where I think it will pro- probably work for you more often than it does against you. But I totally appreciate if people aren't just willing to play those odds and they've been burned enough before. There are a lot of employers who are scared to say the wrong thing, right? And that that is probably a legitimate fear. But I have learnt to just feel the fear and do it anyway, because yeah, you might not get it. You might get it right with one person, wrong with another, and it, again, it's personal. So it's far better to talk about it than not. That's the thing. You can see when someone's being a dick. If someone's, if you're talking to someone and they sort of say the wrong word and they go, "Oh shit, sorry," I'm, I'm, you know, they're not trying to be a dick. And I think you'd be quite sort of forgiving to that. Whereas someone might use perfect language. 
but essentially taking the actions of an asshole. And I know which of those two people that you would prefer, the person who gets a bit of language wrong, but essentially is trying to do their best to make you flourish. Yeah, I, um, I like that. Perfect language, but actions of, a, of an asshole. <laughs> That's great. Is there anything you wish you could tell the youngest you now? Don't say anything libelous. Um, there's a lot of creeps in comedy. Just try not to have too much respect for certain individuals. Someone's been involved in a show. Maybe they made one of the most biggest sitcoms in the world and you have a lot of respect for that person. And you will let some things slide when you work with them because of that. Nobody in this industry is worthy of that much respect apart from Alison Hammond. <laughs> I don't know why. I thought you were going to say, like, David Attenborough. No, Hammond. Nobody is worthy of that much respect. Until they've earned it with you, of course. Um, I mean, you know. Oh, you do make me laugh. Well, thank you, Stu. I've really loved getting to know you. And I think what you've done with Rockadel Studios and what you and Michelle do together and your team that you're building is really inspiring. And the stuff you make is funny. And the people that you know are funny. Oh, and you. you remind us to have a good time at work, even though there are always nuances and difficult moments and getting sacked and resigning and you know winging it via making up the fact that you've got a company and you don't in your very first ever commission i mean all this stuff shapes who we are i really appreciate your time and i, I think you're super cool and now you can you. vape away you know not that you haven't been throughout our interview but vape away now that we can turn our mics off i'm doing my final vaping before the baby drops yeah oh my gosh good luck with the baby how long till he or she is due I mean, literally any day now. I'm then going to go back to square one of um, impostering in your real life. We've only talked about it at work. You wait until you're a dad. <laughs> Thank you, Stu. Thank you very much. This has been lovely. Thank you. Right, come on, imposters. Let's get everyone talking about this stuff more. Open up your WhatsApp groups and tell your production pals they need to listen to The Imposter Club. Everyone loves a podcast recommend, and this is so relevant for them. So that kudos you'll get back is a free gift from me. See you next time. The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist TV executive search and production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Every day, the team matchmake, influence and place premium senior talent in behind the screens roles with integrity and a human approach. Produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt. Executive producer, Rosie Turner. And thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.